Rainbow Valley is a monthly podcast where your host Scott takes a look at key events and personalities that shaped one of the most influential, vibrant, tumultuous and swinging decades in history. Join us as we celebrate the 1960s with the stories surrounding the music and news events of the decade that shook the world. January the 22nd, 1879, Rourke's Drift, Natal, South Africa. A remote mission station and setting for one of the most famous battles in British history. But until 1964 and the release of the movie Zulu, the story of the events of those 10 hours were not particularly familiar to the British public. In reality, 100 British soldiers defended a series of attacks by approximately 4,000 Zulu warriors. By the end of the battle, which lasted from late afternoon until dawn the following morning, 15 soldiers were dead, two mortally wounded, and surrounding them the bodies of some 350 Zulus. Possibly one of the most celebrated and documented battles in British history, you might think. But you'd be wrong, for if it were not for the release of the movie 85 years later, it's likely it would remain a mere postscript in the annals of military conflict. The story of the making of Zulu begins with a magazine article written in 1958 and takes us on a journey that will change the lives of many people along the way. People such as director Cy Enfield, producer and actor Stanley Baker, Zulu tribal leader Chief Butalazi, and a certain young actor from South London called Michael Caine. A movie that remained on cinema screens almost constantly for 12 years before becoming one of the most regarded and best-loved British movies of all time. The story of its creation is almost worthy of a movie in its own right. Ladies and gentlemen, Rainbow Valley is proud to present the story of the making of Zulu. I'm the resurrector, I'm the savior of the boxing world. If it wasn't for me, the game would be dead. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time. Some people are on the fence, they think it's all over. It is now, it's four. One small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. It's now commonly understood that the events portrayed in the 1964 movie Zulu are not exactly a true representation of what occurred at Rourke's Drift in 1879. 
The source material for the movie was from a series of articles written by historian and writer John Preble. In the mid-50s, Preble was commissioned to write a number of pieces surrounding the subject of stories of endurance. Inspired by tales of recipients of the Victoria Cross, the highest British military decoration, awarded for gallantry above and beyond that normally expected of the British soldier. Whilst researching for these pieces, he came upon an account of the battle in the British Library. This then became the basis for a short story published in April 1958 in Lilliput magazine. And although this was only intended to be a short story, and certainly not the foundation for a screenplay or heavyweight historical tome, the research that Preble put in was nonetheless extremely thorough. The initial outline ran to 7,000 words, and was simply titled Rourke's Drift. This was then cut by a third, retitled Slaughter in the Sun, and was published in the April 1958 edition of Lilliput under the pen name of John Curtis. The full version of the text would not appear in print until many years later, as an introduction to Sheldon Hall's magnificent account of the making of Zulu, called With Some Guts Behind It, for which I am indebted to for my research for this episode. John Preble was interviewed in 1966, and in that interview he explained the timescale that led up to the eventual production of the movie two years later. He said, There was an article I wrote in the late 50s, published in Lilliput magazine. During the year that followed, a television producer, Douglas Rankin, approached me and asked if I'd write a screenplay from it. I said I'd never written one before, but I was willing to try. I didn't hear from him for about six months, and then he came up with Cy Enfield, who of course was the eventual director, and he was very enthusiastic about it. I wrote, I think, about two or three drafts, which he would cut or advise me on, but there was no indication anywhere that anyone was going to make this film. He had no money, and I think I was paid 200 quid in the hope of making more should it ever get on the screen. And about a year after that, Stanley came into it. And that was pretty much how it all started. Stanley, of course, being Stanley Baker. But first, a little on Cyril, or Cy Enfield as he became better known. He was born in 1914 in Pennsylvania. As a student at Yale, he was for a short time at least drawn into the activities of the Young Communist League, a decision that would prove to be pivotal with regard to his future career in Hollywood. Leaving Yale before graduating, Enfield forged out a fledgling career as a cabaret artist and a magician. Whilst working at the Hollywood Magic Store on Hollywood Boulevard, His card skills so impressed regular patron Orson Welles, he was offered a job as an assistant at Welles' legendary Mercury production company in 1942, which at the time was making The Magnificent Ambersons. The movie would garner four Oscar nominations that year, but Enfield was already on the move. Over at MGM, he directed his first movie, a 20-minute short starring a pre-aquatic Esther Williams. World War II put a sudden halt to Enfield's Hollywood hopes and dreams after less than a year in Tinseltown, when he was called up for service in the Army Signal Corps. But undeterred, following the end of the war, he returned to NGM and made a further series of shorts before his debut feature-length movie for Monogram in 1946, The Gentleman Joe Palooka. A film that at best could only be described as a B-movie. 
Another three movies over the next three years, combined with the revival of his magic act, kept Enfield busy. And it was during this period that he worked very briefly with a young, pretty wannabe actress. An actress who would join him on stage occasionally as his assistant, performing a variety of illusions and card tricks. An actress whose talent was obvious to Enfield, but no matter how hard he tried, he just could not convince anyone to take a chance and give her a starring role. Her name? Marilyn Monroe. By now, Enfield was starting to be noticed with movies such as The Underworld Story and The Sound of Fury, and it wasn't long before he came to the attention of the House of Un-American Activities Committee. On the 19th of September 1951, Enfield was identified along with 160 others as a communist. In reality, Enfield's communist activities were over 10 years old, but here he was being identified as being the treasurer of the Hollywood branch. Enfield, who had always been a man of principle, was unable to even consider becoming what was known as a friendly witness and rat on his friends and movie-making colleagues. And so, on New Year's Eve 1951, Cy Enfield arrived in the UK, and it was here that he made his home until his death in 1995. Between 1952 and the release of Zulu in 1964, Cy Enfield found a lot of work in TV as well as screenwriting. He rewrote the script for the classic Night of the Demon in 1957, but was never credited. He also directed around half a dozen feature films, the most famous of which being Hell Drivers, which was also released in 1957, and featured Sid James, Shirley Eaton, a young Sean Connery, and starred Stanley Baker. Hell Drivers, hurtling down the one-way street to destruction. Starring Stanley Baker as Tom, using another man's name but forced by his own past into the vicious circle of the Hell Drivers. The scum. Patrick McGowan is Red, their brutal boss. Violence is the only language that he understands. (laughs) 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 Herbert Long is Gino, the Italian. And Peggy Cummins is his girlfriend, Lucy. Why, you look so pretty tonight. But is she really Gino's girl? I suppose you're the type that I'd see two men shooting it out of you. Hell drivers, living so close to death that any love is reckless, any hatred Around the same time that Senator McCarthy began to take notice of Cy Enfield, the world had just started to take notice of Stanley Baker. Following rave reviews for his performance in Captain Horatio Hornblower, starring Gregory Peck, it marked the turning point for the 23-year-old actor who had been appearing in front of the camera since the age of 14. Movie roles soon came Baker's way after the success of Hornblower. In 1953, he appeared alongside his Zulu co-star Jack Hawkins in The Cruel Sea. 
Laurence Olivier cast him as Henry, Earl of Richmond, in his 1955 big-screen adaptation of Richard III. And the following year, he would appear with friend and fellow countryman Richard Burton in Alexander the Great. Prior to Zulu, he would also work with director Cy Enfield on no less than four occasions, in No Child in the House, Sea Fury, Jet Storm and of course Hell Drivers. And Baker's links to his future co-stars and collaborators didn't stop there. In 1956, Julian Ames directed a British war movie entitled A Hill in Korea. It was the first major feature film to portray British troops in action during the Korean War. Also starring George Baker and Harry Andrews, the movie also presented early screen appearances for Robert Shaw and Ronald Lewis. It had a score by Sir Malcolm Arnold. In charge of cinematography was none other than Freddie Francis, and in his first credited film role, Michael Caine. Now, the Michael Caine story deserves an entire episode of this podcast to itself. Such is the prestige of the legendary 60s icon, and indeed, there will eventually be a show dedicated to the great man himself at some point in the future. But for now, the oft-told tale of Harry actually got the role. Caine would often recount on TV interviews as well as his autobiography how he was awarded the role of Lieutenant Bromhead. One night, Stanley Baker with whom I had worked all those years ago in the Hill in Korea, came backstage to visit me. By now, he was one of the biggest stars in the British cinema. In the show, I played a cockney, and Stanley explained that he was starring in and producing a film called Zulu, in which there was a cockney character. If I was interested in trying for the part, I'd have to go to see the director, Cy Enfield, in the bar of the Prince of Wales Theatre at 10 o'clock the next morning. Cy Enfield was a tubby, slow-speaking, slow-moving, middle-aged American. As he stood up and shook hands, his first words were, I'm sorry to have wasted your time, Michael, but we've already given the part to James Booth. We figured that he looked more like a Cockney than you do. I knew Jimmy Booth, who was a very good actor, and I had to agree he did look more like a Cockney than me. This was a terrible disappointment, and the rejection would have floored me at one time but I'd suffered so much of it, I just went into my routine defence, which was numb mode. Sorry, kid, he said. That's okay, I smiled. Maybe next time. The bar was very long, and I could not wait to reach the door and get out of there, away from yet another humiliation. I opened the door and was just about to disappear when Sai shouted, Michael, come back here. I walked back. Can you do any other accent but Cockney? When I was in rep, I was doing 50 plays a year using every accent from American gangster to Lord of the Manor. I can do any accent you want. Can you do upper crust English? That's the easiest one of all, I shrugged, hoping desperately that I could remember how to do it. Sai stared at me for a while, and then he said, You know, you don't look like a Cockney. You look like one of those snotty, blue-blooded English guys. I looked in the mirror behind the bar. Maybe he was right, I thought. I was six feet two inches tall, very slim, with long blonde hair and blue eyes. Yeah, I was nobody's idea of a typical cockney. In this movie, Sai interrupted my thoughts, 
There is a character called Gonville Bromhead. He's a very snobbish and aristocratic lieutenant who thinks that he is superior to everybody, especially the character played by Stanley, who will be here in a minute, he added. Would you mind waiting? I agreed to this instantly and afterwards stood there feigning disinterest while they huddled in a corner, discussing my suitability. Finally, they turned to me and Sy said, Can you do a screen test with Stanley on Friday morning? I walked out of the bar again, but this time with an almighty spring in my step. As I went through the door, I reflected on what would have happened if that bar had been shorter. And so, if it wasn't for the length of that unusually long bar at the theatre, Kane would never have got the part that launched his career towards superstardom. for Zulu didn't lend itself to major international stars appearing in the cast, but throughout pre-production, rumours were rife that Enfield and Baker would be joined in South Africa by such luminaries as Gene Simmons, Dirk Bogart, Deborah Carr or even Alec Guinness. Looking back now, nearly 60 years later, it's very difficult to fault the final cast list. A list of names, some recognisable at the time, others not so. By 1964, Jack Hawkins was a familiar face, not only on UK cinema screens, but internationally as well. Appearing in traditional British fare such as The Cruel Sea, The League of Gentlemen and Mandy, as well as international blockbusters including Ben-Hur, Bridge on the River Kwai and Lawrence of Arabia, he was a much-loved and well-respected, reliable actor. Just prior to his casting in Zulu, however, things had not been easy for the star. Hawkins was a chain smoker, a 60 a day man, and in the late 50s he began to experience problems with his voice. Unknown to the public, he had undergone cobalt treatment in 1959 for what was then described as a secondary condition of the larynx, but in reality it was almost certainly cancer. Concerned that he would lose his voice, he took on every offer of work available. After all, what good was an actor without his voice? Indeed, he said later in an interview with the Los Angeles Times, I had to be realistic and take as much money as I could while the going was good. His voice certainly changed, becoming gruffer as the illness worsened, and eventually, following a diagnosis of throat cancer in 1965, his entire larynx was removed. But even that didn't stop him. He continued to act right up until he died in July 1973, his voice usually dubbed by Charles Gray or the legendary voice actor Robert Rietti. In private, he would communicate with the aid of a mechanical voice box, still continuing to smoke right up until his death at the age of 62. covenant with death and with hell you are in agreement you're all going to die don't you realize can't you see 
You're all going to die! Die! Death awaits you all! He's right. Die! Why is it us, eh? Because we're here, lad. Nobody else. Just us. As mentioned earlier, at the time of Michael Caine's audition, the part of Private Hook had already been cast with James Booth. After national service and officers training at Sandhurst where he achieved the rank of captain, he won a scholarship to study at RAD, graduating in 1956, alongside fellow classmates Albert Finney, Alan Bates, Richard Harris and Peter O'Toole. He was eventually taken up by the legendary Joan Littlewood's London Theatre Workshop at Stratford. And before Zulu, Booth was probably best known as appearing as the lead in Sparrows Can't Sing with Barbara Windsor in 1963. Booth recalled Harry being approached to play Hook while he was appearing as Edmund in King Lear at the Royal Shakespeare Company in Stratford-upon-Avon. I've been introduced to Stanley Baker by a guy called John McMichael, who was his agent and also my agent. We've become quite good friends. Stanley called me up and said, did I want to play Hook in Zulu? He said, come down and meet the director, an American called Cy Enfield. So I went and met him, and that's how I got the part. I was only on the picture for about a week or ten days. The worldwide success of Zulu and Booth's incredible performance in the film should have heralded a career as a major star, but unfortunately several bad choices ensured that this was not to be the case. Booth turned down two film offers to appear alongside his Sparrows Can't Sing co-star Barbara Windsor as Robin Hood in Lionel Bart's calamitous stage musical Twang. Bart was the golden boy of the West End riding high on the success of Oliver, Twang, however, would come nowhere near to replicating that success, closing after only 10 weeks. Lionel Bart, however, would also have a hand in one aspect of the production of Zulu, albeit indirectly, as we shall discover in a little while. And as for the two roles that James Booth turned down to appear in Twang, well, one was Willie Garvin in Modesty Blaze, perhaps the most 60-est of 60s movies, the role eventually going to Terence Stamp. And the other a role that went to Zulu co-star Michael Caine, further cementing his stratospheric rise to stardom. The lead in Alpha. About. I'm sick. I'm excused duty. What are you doing? Oh, making a loophole, see? Me and Hookie's gonna fight in here, aren't we, Hookie? You're joking. I'm sick. Nobody's got any right to ask me to muck around in a flaming battle. I'm getting out. Private Hook! Yeah. Yes, Sergeant. I know you, Hook. Yeah, you ought to. You're no good, Hook. They gave us you because you are no good to anyone except the Queen and Sergeant Maxfield. Thank you very much, the both of you. Take this rifle, Hook. 
can't get to it. I'll make a soldier of you yet. Then what for? Did I ever see a Zulu walk down the city road? No. So what am I doing here? You are here because you were a thief. Yeah. And you still are one. Certainly. Hook, my lad. And now you can be a soldier, like what they pay you for. Look, you got me 28 days field punishment in Brecon. Isn't that enough? Hmm? Pick up the bayonet and help Williams. And put your tuning on! One role that certainly stands out amongst the cast of Zulu, and possibly one that is accentuated by the performance of the actor, is that of Colour Sergeant Frank Bourne. A character that could have quite easily been seen as more of a background figure were it not for the subtle yet commanding performance from Nigel Green. Excuse me, sir. Tuck your edge in before they fall off. Sorry, sir. I have orders to get some of these bags outside. All right, get on with it. I was praying that your officer may turn to God's word. That's right, sir. A prayer's as good as a bayonet on a day like this. Have you prayed? There'll be a time for it, sir. What will you say? Oh, pick it up. To the Psalms, I suppose. My father was a lay preacher. Great one for the Psalms, he was. There was one. Well, might have been written for a soldier. Say it, man. Lift your voice to God. <laughs> now, sir, just let them hear your voice. They know my voice when they hear it, sir. Let them hear it now in praise of the Lord. Call upon him. Call upon him, man, for your salvation. Well, as far as I can remember, sir, it goes something like this. He maketh wars to cease in all the world. He breaketh the bow and snappeth the spear in sunder. Do you know it, sir? I shall be exalted among the heathen. I shall be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. That's it, sir. All right. Nobody told you to stop working. You led backsided. Get sweating. A towering presence throughout the movie, Green was actually born in South Africa in 1924, his family emigrating to Britain five years later. Green's TV and movie career began when he was 28 in movies such as The Sea Shall Not Have Them and Reach for the Sky alongside Kenneth Moore. There was the recurring role of the bear in TV's The Adventures of William Tell, as well as Little John in the movie spin-off of Robin Hood starring Richard Green. And just prior to Zulu, Green was possibly best known for his performance as Hercules in the international smash Jason and the Argonauts. Other familiar faces in the movie include Glyn Edwards as Corporal William Allen, probably best known in his later career as Dave, the owner of the Winchester Club in Minder. There's Larry Taylor as Private Hughes, an actor and a stuntman, a familiar face who appeared in nearly 100 movies. Ivor Emmanuel, the Welsh tenor, was originally brought in just to sing Men of Harlech. But on further consideration, Stanley Baker decided it had to be put in place in a believable manner and not just something that appears without warning. So, he was given the major supporting role of Private Owen. (laughs) 
Dennis Graham, who played Private Jones, still with us at the time of this recording at the grand old age of 96, had a TV and movie career spanning nearly 50 years. Coincidentally, he was appearing in a play alongside Michael Caine when they both got called up for their Zulu auditions. And there is the wonderful story of how David Kernan got the part of Private Hitch. He was appearing in the hugely popular satirical TV show That Was The Week That Was. Thelma Graves, the casting woman, called him up and said that they were interested in him playing the part of a down-at-heel Cockney private. A creative choice of casting as he was very well spoken. Nevertheless, that was the week that was his producer, Ned Sherin, released him from his contract temporarily in order for him to spend six weeks filming in South Africa. It wasn't until the cast and crew were flying across Africa in their chartered flight that Stanley Baker suddenly noticed him and said, Who the fuck are you? He replied, I'm David Kernan. To which Stanley Baker responded, I didn't mean you, I meant Roy Kinnear. Apparently, Baker had asked Felma Graves to book the TW3 cast member whose name began with a K. An Afrikaans word for separation. Apartheid was used to describe the discriminatory political and economic system of racial segregation which the white minority opposed on non-whites. It was implemented by the governing party, the National Party of South Africa, from 1948 until 1994. Segregation according to race wasn't new to South Africa, as racial legislation in the country can be seen as early as 1806, but it was greatly extended with the Population Registration Act of 1950, which divided South Africans into four categories. Bantu, the black South Africans, coloured, those of mixed race, white and Asian, mainly Indian and Pakistani South Africans. The act was designed to preserve white supremacy in the country. The effect of apartheid touched every aspect of daily life. By 1950, marriage and sexual relations between white and non-white South Africans were banned, while a series of land acts meant more than 80% of the country's land was set aside for the white minority. Black men and women were forced to live in 10 so-called black homelands, where they were permitted to run businesses. To live and work in designated white areas, they required permits. Hospitals, ambulances, buses and public facilities were all segregated, and non-white participation in government was denied. The impact on South Africa's non-white population was horrific. Families were often split by the laws. If parents were black and white, the children were classed as coloured. And between 1961 and 1994, 3.5 million people were forcibly removed from their homes. The land was sold for a fraction of its price, plunging non-whites into severe poverty and despair.
The evidence of the effects of apartheid was shockingly clear to cast and crew from the moment they arrived. Michael Caine described in his autobiography how they were met at the airport by the chief of police who carried a large bundle of paperwork which laid out the laws of the land with regard to race and the severe consequences of what would happen were they not to be observed. The government insisted that all members of the film crew plus the cast were bound contractually to abide by the laws. Any contravention, for example fraternising with a black woman, could potentially lead to the movie being shut down and everyone being sent home. Many years later, Glyn Edwards would recall, It was virtually an all-male film. Then one day, they brought in 70 or 80 girls, boobs glistening in the sunlight, and Stanley would say, Remember the contract, lads? The crewmen were only permitted to work with the Zulus. No social interaction whatsoever. No offering of cigarettes, no physical contact, and conversation only through an interpreter. There was, however, a few chances to bend the rules a little along the way, including a few beers here and there, and a very hush-hush game of rugby. A very difficult situation, made even more difficult by the constant overseeing by plainclothes policemen and even spies working alongside the labour groups to report any suspicious goings-on. Michael Caine recalled a shocking incident that took place on set. One day I saw a black worker make a mistake and I stopped to watch him getting a real telling off, just as an English worker would do in the same situation. To my astonishment, the foreman didn't reprimand him. He smashed a fist into his face instead. I was so shocked at this I couldn't move and then suddenly I started to run towards the man screaming at him. But Stanley got there first. I had never seen him so angry. He fired the man on the spot and then gathered all the white gang bosses together and laid down the law on how everyone was going to be treated on this film set from then on. He was in an absolute fury and so were the rest of the British contingent. It brought home for the first time what this word apartheid really meant. Following the incident, Kane vowed that he would never set foot on South African soil whilst apartheid was in place and he remained true to his word. Another unsettling incident occurred towards the end of filming in June when several members of the crew witnessed what could only be described as legalised oppression. On June the 12th, Chief Lazy was arrested on set on suspicion of attempting to rob a petrol station. When the case eventually went to court, he was acquitted of all charges. The whole thing apparently was some kind of stitch-up in an attempt to prevent him from making his first trip out of the country to attend a religious conference in Canada. Cyanfield's wife, Maureen, felt that their time there was incredibly depressing, witnessing the living conditions of the black community and the way they were treated by the white South Africans. Stanley Baker's wife, Ellen, went on record many years later stating that she believed that the Afrikaners disliked the visitors from Britain as much as they did the blacks, mainly because they'd come over to their country with the attitude that the blacks should be treated on the same level as the whites. But as we've just heard, the English crew certainly had no qualms about mixing with their black counterparts, but the South Africans were. It was something totally outlandish to what they had known for a century. 
More examples of this behaviour include the time when the camera crew were asked if they would like some Zulus employed as part of their team. A request was put in for two, but it was quickly suggested there ought to be four, as a Zulu is only worth half a one. Incredibly, when the four Zulus reported for work, they arrived with numbers around their necks on small white tags and instructions to just call the number and they'll soon come running. Needless to say, camera technician Peter Hammond and the rest of the team refused to do it. There was another occasion when several of the camera crew were invited to somebody's house over one particular weekend. A black servant came over to where they were sitting carrying a tray of drinks. The crew members said thank you, but they were soon reprimanded by the woman of the house who said you mustn't thank them, they'll lose all respect for you. The Zulu unit remained on location in South Africa for 14 weeks from the 28th of March. It was winter in South Africa and despite what you see on screen, the grasslands were dry and the weather was often cold. Days were short, night fell quickly. As it was usually dark by 6pm, technicians were on set by 5.30 in the morning to make use of what light was available. The actors were in makeup by half past six and everybody found themselves working a six day week, sometimes seven. One of the more frustrating aspects of the production was the weather conditions. Studies had been made before the crew's departure of weather patterns over the previous 13 years, all of which indicated that they would be in the country when the weather would be at its best for filming. But despite this, April saw some heavy rainfall, resulting in a loss of 20 days shooting. A lot of this, however, was quickly made up with the location filming only finishing a week behind schedule. From a technical point of view, Zulu was filmed in widescreen, a process called Technirama. It was developed in 1957 from the Vistavision system using 35mm film that ran horizontally rather than vertically through the camera. When the negative film was exposed, it resulted in a frame twice the size of a standard 35mm film with a brighter, clearer image alongside a much sharper resolution. A total of three cameras were employed for the film, an adapted Vistavision camera, a converted Technicolor 3-strip camera, the 3-strip colour format now obsolete since the mid-50s, and a smaller, lightweight camera used for several of the action sequences. Most of these action sequences were helmed by first assistant director Burt Batt, and it was Batt who devised one of the most significant, impressive and compelling shots in the movie. It's the scene featuring the first appearance of the hordes of Zulu standing on top of the hillside that overlooks Rourke's Drift. North Rampart, stand fast! But as there are not enough Zulu extras to create the illusion of the great numbers required, some creative set dressing and camera work was required. 
Over 120 Zulu shields were placed on wooden stakes at varying heights and angles and hammered into the ground. Because the distance they were to be filmed at, it gave the impression that each shield was being held by a Zulu warrior. The camera panned across the static shields, then moved down to the 250 or so actual extras who then started to run in. The camera had to be held steady with a broom handle as the camera operator struggled to hold the focus as well as turn the camera on its axis at the same time. But eventually, the final product leaves no doubt that the Zulu army was much, much larger than was available for filming. Stunt rangers John Sullivan and Joe Powell, whilst having acting roles in the movie, were also in charge of rehearsals for scenes that called for close combat. Seven professional black stuntmen were hired, all boxers, wrestlers or bodybuilders, hired specifically for the close-ups and foreground shots that then gave the impression that the Zulu forces were made up of fit, powerful, strong young men. And it's quite remarkable that during the battle scenes, with all the organised chaos and mayhem, no one was seriously injured. Thanks mainly to rubber bayonets and spears. Makeup was overseen by Charles E. Parks, who had worked previously on movies such as Ben Hur, Lawrence of Arabia, and Moby Dick. Apparently, his work was so realistic, he managed to convince one of the onset doctors that a false bullet wound on one of the Zulus was indeed real and the result of an accident. Fake blood was the order of the day on this shoot, as well as one particular piece of makeup that required some special attention. Michael Caine, as we know, was very blonde at this stage in his career, and as such tended to photograph badly. The solution? Well, as well as some of the usual creative lipstick powder and paint, Caine was fitted with false eyelashes, imported specially from England, and even then these had to be darkened with mascara. Most scenes in the movie were filmed out of sequence. This was except for the battle scenes, which were filmed largely in story order, mainly to ensure the continuity of the complex set pieces. After all, there were literally hundreds of actors and extras on screen in these sequences, and errors could easily occur. Female lead Ula Jacobson arrived on the 20th of May, not long after Jack Hawkins, and they shot their scenes over the next three weeks or so. This in turn created a problem for the shooting of the movie from a logistical and technical point of view. Jacobson and Hawkins' characters needed to be seen on screen near and around the hospital. Unfortunately, the hospital was due to be burned down before they were due to arrive. Time was of the essence, so the decision was made to burn down the hospital, film it, and then rebuild it for the scenes featuring the wits. To add to the difficulties, and bear this in mind, this was something that couldn't really be repeated, the VistaVision camera had a particular quirk. The viewfinder, unlike most other cameras, was on the top and not on the side. 
For those of you that understand these things, there was no parallax correction. For those of us who don't understand these things, it simply meant that the image that was visible in the camera's viewfinder was not exactly the one that was recorded on the film. How did they get round this? Well, the camera operator, Dudley Lovell, simply had to guess the correct framing. The cameras were lined up, the fire was started, and the camera operator ran as fast as he could between the three cameras, adjusting the shot each time, hoping and praying that everything was shot and framed correctly. As he ran furiously back and forth, the heat from the flames getting stronger and more intense, he noticed that the second camera was panning down on the floor. The whole sequence had been filmed on that particular camera looking down at the ground. Quickly panning back up to get into the right frame, Lovell said nothing as the cameras turned and the hospital gradually burned to the ground. About a week later, the rushes came back. Lovell was dreading what he'd actually recorded. Surely they couldn't go through the whole thing yet again. And there, on screen in front of the crew, the shot he had been dreading. Yes, the camera was pointing slightly towards the ground, but in doing so, it had captured a huge puddle from the water hoses. And there, in its reflection, the hospital furiously ablaze as the roof collapses. Enfield and Baker all remarked that it was a beautiful shot. Wonderful stuff. In fact, the best shot of the whole sequence. Why hadn't he said anything at the time? Dudley Lovell never said a word and recalled many years later that sometimes it's better just to be lucky rather than to be clever. And that was that. Well, for South Africa at least. Four more weeks of shooting lay ahead at Shepperton Studios along with music, editing and post-production. Exactly three months after the start of filming, cast and crew boarded their Lufthansa charter flight bound for Heathrow Airport. There would be two days respite before work would begin once again, this time on English soil. mentioned briefly earlier. Several members of the cast were not required for filming on location in South Africa. The interior scenes, such as those set in the hospital, didn't require the presence of actors such as James Booth, Paul Damon, Patrick McGee, Richard Davis, Dennis Graham and David Havard. At the time of filming, Pinewood and Shepperton were considerably larger than Twickenham Studios, which was the home for Zulu for the next four weeks. To give you some idea of the difference in scale, there were three sound stages at Twickenham, the largest being 116 feet by 62, whereas Shepperton were proud of the fact they had the largest stage in Europe at the time, twice the size, and a massive 250 feet by 119. With the effect of the realism, the smaller stage worked in their favour, as it gave the impression that the space was quite cramped and provided a claustrophobic setting for the intense scenes of hand-to-hand combat. 
What about the actors portraying the Zulu warriors? Well, of course, it wouldn't have been practical or cost-effective to fly the original extras over to Twickenham. Actor James Booth recalled, All the Zulus came from Brixton and Notting Hill Gate. We had about 20 or 30. They turned up looking like anybody else. Some they had to black up. Some of them were not as dark as those who live in the Krolls. They were just guys off the street. I think we got them from the labour exchanges, I remember. They were all cricket fans, supporters of the West Indian cricket team. And just because the action had moved indoors, it didn't mean that it was any less dangerous. There were a lot of special effects involving fire and smoke, but luckily plenty of fire officers were standing by ready to extinguish any Zulu whose feather-laden costume had caught a light. The danger also increased significantly, as it was soon discovered that the hand-to-hand combat appeared to be just that little more realistic after the actors, soldiers and Zulus alike, all returned regularly from the pub at lunchtime with a belly full of Guinness. Finally, by the last week of July, all shooting on the movie was completed, under budget and only a week behind the original schedule. Joe Levine and Paramount Vice President George Weltner saw the first rough cut of the assembled footage at a screening in London on the 23rd of July. The following day, Cy Enfield and Stanley Baker received the following letter from Joe Levine. To say that I am thrilled beyond words would be putting it mildly. Zulu is my kind of picture. It's big, it has guts, and it has all kinds of exploitation values that we can really sink our teeth into. Things were looking exceptionally good, but there was still a long way to go. Editing the movie initially took place on location in South Africa. Film editor John Jimson and his assistant Jennifer Thompson flew out to make a start on the 5,000 feet of Teclarama film stock that had passed through the cameras on each day of shooting. By the end of location shooting, a total of 350,000 feet plus 560 slates had been exposed for a film that eventually ran for 138 minutes or just over 12,000 feet of film. An editing room had been set up on location in South Africa, as well as a screening room to view the early rushes. There was a problem though in the fact that the processed footage had to be sent back to the Technicolor lab in London. This created a delay of a week, meaning that any problems with the shots already taken would not be identified for at least seven days. Retakes would often have to be taken several days after the first had been shot. Editor John Jimson came with a wealth of experience and was personally selected by Stanley Baker after working with him on two of his previous movies, A Prize of Arms and The Man Who Finally Died. Jimson was assistant director on Scott of the Antarctic, Kind Hearts and Coronets and The Lavender Hill Mob, and his future career would involve editing duties on A Hard Day's Night, Where Eagles Dare and A Fish Called Wanda. Zulu is a striking movie, literally from start to finish. Probably as much thought and planning went into the creation of the opening and closing titles as the rest of the movie. 
there was talk and deliberation of a pre-credit sequence featuring either the wedding dance or the Battle of Isanguala. Where should the Richard Burton narration be included, before or after the credits? One potential pre-credit sequence submitted to Seinfeld in the final stages of post-production involved several off-screen images that depicted the reaction in Britain to the news of the defeat at Isandwala. The credits appearing against historical prints of Victorian London. Eventually, it was decided that after the Paramount logo, the epic stirring theme by John Barry would kick in. Followed by the usual list of cast and crew and yellow lettering on a black background. The screen is filled with words January 23rd, 1879, and a shot of the dispatch from York Chelmsford, plus the unmistakable mellifluous tones of Richard Burton. The Secretary of State for War has today received the following dispatch from Lord Chelmsford, Commander-in-Chief of Her Majesty's Forces in Natal Colony, South Africa. I regret to report a very disastrous engagement which took place on the morning of the 22nd January between the armies of the Zulu King, Quechua, and our own number three column, consisting of five companies of the 1st Battalion, 24th Regiment of Foot, and one company of the 2nd Battalion, a total of nearly 1,500 men, officers, and other ranks. The Zulus, in overwhelming numbers, launched a highly disciplined attack on the slopes of the mountain of Visandwana, and in spite of gallant resistance... As the shot zooms in closer and closer to the dispatch, it blurs and becomes out of focus. The shot then switching to the aftermath of the Battle of Isandwala. Hundreds of dead and wounded soldiers laying across a smoke-filled plain as the victorious Zulu warriors walk amongst the bodies gathering up their weapons. A mighty warrior raises his shield and recovered rifle aloft as the word Zulu fills the screen, its four letters filled with flickering flames. As well as getting the visuals right, the sound had to be perfect as well. One of the advantages of working on this particular location was that the sound technicians had a blank canvas to work from. There was no background noise, there was no passing aeroplanes, no cars, nothing. In fact, the sound crew described the location as eerily silent. Just the occasional sound of an insect chirping or a bird tweeting. Extra sound, so to speak, was recorded separately away from the main body of filming, things such as set noises and general atmosphere. Eventually the sound director would create a final mix, removing any unnecessary sounds and adding things like the sounds of a clock ticking in the background or drinks being poured. Dialogue would also have to be replaced on occasion when a gust of wind would obscure or muffle the voices. 
Great care was taken to source such things as birdsong and animal noises, making sure that the pieces used were appropriate for the location. Sound already recorded on set was emphasised, the crackling of the hospital fire, the sound of bodies falling, spears going into bodies, that sort of thing. Libraries were scoured to find the sounds of rifles being fired, great care taken to ensure that the sound was fitting for a weapon of that era. The rhythmic foot stomping of the Zulu warriors was incredible, but even this had to be enhanced along with the shield banging. This was a big screen picture, the sound had to be big as well. Do you remember this scene? Chard, one of my men, Hook, do you know him? No. In the hospital, malingering under arrest. He's a thief, a coward, and an insubordinate barrackroom lawyer. And you've given him a rifle. What? In Queen's regulations, it specifically states... Damn funny. Like a... Like a train, in the distance. The sound of Zulu spears being beaten against their shields. In actual fact, Michael Caine was correct there. The sound you hear is the soundtrack of a train on rails combined with the beating of the shields in sync with its rhythm, combined with the sound of a deep rumble of thunder. You were saying about Hook? Mr. Bromwich, sir. Sentries come in from the hill. They say... Tell us, Sergeant. Sir. You have something to report? Sir. Then tell me. Very good, sir. The sentries report Zulus to the southwest. Thousands of them. Equally important to the soundscape of the movie was the music. Not only the soundtrack by the legendary John Barry, but the native music and songs of the Zulus themselves. Chief Butelezi's mother was a tribal historian and introduced the crew to many traditional tribal songs. Performances of these were recorded and were used not only for parts of the movie that included tribal music, such as the wedding dance, for example, but also as a reference for John Barry when he began to compose the score. Barry, inspired by the repetition of the chants, combined them with his more traditional Western composing techniques, creating not only the main theme, but the basis for the rest of the score. John Barry found early pop success with the John Barry 7, which led to the Yorkshire cinema owner's son scoring his first film, Beat Girl, in 1959. 1962, 
and John Barry was asked to arrange possibly the most famous movie theme in history. James Bond team created a new trend in pop-influenced movie scores. This in turn led to Barry composing the entire score for From Russia With Love, the second Bond movie. The title song, sung superbly by Matt Munro, was composed by Lionel Bart, who was riding high in the West End at the time of the success of Oliver. Lionel Bart was a close friend of Stanley Baker. In fact, Baker had been approached to play the role of Bill Sykes in the stage version of the musical, but had turned it down. In return, Baker had originally approached Lionel Bart to compose the score for Zulu, but Bart Having been impressed by John Barry's work on From Russia With Love, plus also feeling that he himself was probably not the best man for the job, suggested John Barry in his place. Barry, throughout the whole creative and scoring process, and in interviews for many years to come, would always cite the original Zulu songs and rhythms as his inspiration, saying that their simplicity with just two chord changes with a backbone to the whole thing. And of course, following Zulu, Barry's career ranks him amongst the greatest movie composers of all time. Ten more Bond movies would follow, along with Midnight Cowboy, Out of Africa, Dances with Wolves, and many, many more. The music speaks for itself. And incredibly, when you consider for many people the music in Zulu is one of the highlights, it actually only lasts for less than 20 minutes of the film's 138 minute running time. And of course, while on the subject of music in Zulu, it would be unforgivable of me not to mention the piece that is most associated with the film. the imagination of audiences worldwide as the British soldiers, led by Private Owen, played by Ivor Emmanuel, rallied the troops' morale in the face of the Zulu's own intimidating war chants. Memorable as it is, it very nearly couldn't be used as the company had not secured the copyright clearance on the lyrics. Sienfield and Ivor Emmanuel got around this little issue quite simply, they rewrote it. 
Finally, when discussing music, songs and sound editing in the movie, there's one crucial element that needs to be covered here. As I mentioned earlier, it's the scene that needed to be set at the beginning of the film. And the idea of a narration around the letter of dispatch from Lord Chelmsford to Queen Victoria was soon decided upon. Richard Burton not only jumped at the chance to take part, but he also refused to be paid, which was lucky as the budget probably couldn't have afforded him at that particular time. If you want the full story of what was actually going on around that time with Richard Burton, Elizabeth Taylor and Cleopatra, around about 62-63, go take a listen to the earlier Rainbow Valley episode that deals entirely with that whole incredible story. After much negotiation and deliberation, Zulu was granted a U certificate by the BBFC. In the USA, where a formal rating system would not be adopted until 1968, it was eventually granted with a seal of approval in January 1964. In both cases, the usual discussion on violence, blasphemy and curse words were at the forefront. In South Africa, however, where the movie would eventually get released in December 1964, they had their own unique way of deciding who could see a movie. For example, for a black South African in South Africa, it was not possible to simply go to a cinema and watch any movie that arrived in their country. Movies were graded in accordance with a certain hierarchy. At the top you had the whites, in the middle the coloureds, and at the bottom the blacks. This meant that, in effect, white child could be given the same grading or permission to watch a movie as an adult black African. The Publications Control Board declared Zulu unfit for black consumption and awarded it a D rating. Basically the country's indigenous population and children under 12 years old were unable to see it. This of course included all the Zulu stuntmen, actors and extras that had taken part. Cy Enfield and Stanley Baker eventually got a 16mm print of the film sent out to Zululand for everyone involved to watch, following Chief Boutalese's expression of deep sorrow over the matter. And incredibly, this situation would continue for another 30 years. There was to be a planned screening of the film in 1993 on the state-run South African Broadcasting Corporation. This long-awaited screening was cancelled at the last minute, because the critics argued of the political ramifications of depicting black-on-white violence at a time of real-life social and political unrest. What makes this decision even more incredible, but also understandable in a way, is the fact that the movie had already been screened on the same network previously and would be shown again in November of the following year. It was all down to timing, because the week after the screening of the movie in November 93 would see the signing of a new constitution, preparing the way for the democratic all-races election that would usher in Nelson Mandela as president. Ironically, following the fall of the apartheid regime, Chief Butalazi was appointed Minister for Home Affairs, in charge of the very ministry that had previously been responsible for censorship. <laughs> 
public's first glimpse of the spectacle yet to come was, as tradition usually dictates in these matters, the cinema trailer. Damn funny. Like a... like a train. In the distance. Dwarfing the mightiest. Towering over the greatest. the days and nights of fury and honor, of courage and cowardice that an entire century of empire making and filmmaking can never surpass. This is the day when 200 Zulu virgins and 200 Zulu warriors perform their fantastic wedding dance. This is the day a woman fights for her honor, among men fighting for their lives. (laughs) You're all going to die! Don't you realize? Can't you see? Die! Why is it us? Why us? Because we're here, lad. Nobody else. For every gunshot wound I probe, I expect to lance three boils. A spot of medicinal brandy had set me up. Brandy's for heroes, Mr. Hook. This is the battle of Rourke's Drift. A day and night of death and defiance. When the British were outnumbered but not outfought. When 11 Victoria Crosses were awarded in the one day for valor and extreme courage over and above the call of duty. obviously impossible to put across here in a podcast the visual aspects of what the public witnessed in that two and a half minutes of preview that was shown in theatres in the lead up to the movie's release. 
but with a narration by Canadian actor Robert Beatty, a very familiar voice used in British trailers, you get a very good sense here of what was to be hitting the movie screens very soon and the action that awaited the audience. Also, by listening to this audio-only version of the trailer, the work that went into the music and sound editing stands out above everything else. trailer was only part of a massive publicity campaign that began way back in November 1962 when the movie's production was announced in the trade press and continued way into 1964 even after the movie was released. As with most major movies of this period and even today, Paramount distributed press campaign packs to the exhibitors. Featuring all the promotional material available to them such as posters and lobby cards, It also contained ideas and suggestions for making the most of local opportunities in order to promote the movie. It suggested contacting local war veterans and scout groups and cadets to take part in parades, and even organised such things as special hero nights where local press would be invited. Initially, the premiere for Zulu was scheduled for Christmas 1963 in New York and London and would be released simultaneously in 12 other world capitals. After filming had finished, however, it was decided that the premiere would be a Royal Command performance in London in February 1964. This then became a charity benefit screening on the 22nd of January the 85th anniversary of the Battle of Rourke's Drift. Held at the plaza on Regent Street, which at the time was Paramount's flagship cinema in London, the 1900-seat venue was filled with dignitaries and celebrities. There were dozens of soldiers from the South Wales borderers, all resplendent in Victorian redcoat uniforms. There were MPs, members of the House of Lords and Welsh celebrities including Harry Seacombe and Mervyn Johns. There were three holders of the Victoria Cross, as well as Lieutenant Colonel Sir Benjamin Bromhead OBE, direct descendant of Gromville Bromhead. Also present was of course the cast and their significant others with dates for the movie. Michael Caine was accompanied by future fashion designer Adina Roney. A quick glimpse through the rest of the guest list, and you'd have spotted Liz Fraser, Terence Stamp, Al McCogan, Donald Sindon, and John Barry. There was a musical concert prior to the screening featuring the band of Who Else But The Welsh Guards, accompanied by the choir of the 1st Battalion Welsh Guards, and their rendition of Men of Harlech, amongst many others. After the screening of the movie itself, which was met with a rapturous round of applause, there was an after-show party at the Mayfair Hotel. The film would not go on general release until Easter that year, but before then there were numerous press launches around the country, attended by various members of the cast and crew. And on the 23rd of March a special screening was held at the Olympia Theatre in Cardiff, 
a duplicate premiere if you like, featuring all the razzmatazz of the London screening, including military bands, patriotic music, usherettes in traditional Welsh costumes, plus four Welsh Victoria Cross holders, and Mrs L Bunting, the daughter of Private Hook. Incidentally, the descendants of Private Hook were said to be outraged at the depiction of their ancestor by James Booth and the script that showed him to be a drunken malingering coward. Whereas in reality, he was one of the recipients of the Victoria Cross awarded for his bravery during the battle. All around the country, cinemas took the advice of the press campaign books and invited local military veterans, relatives of the Rorkesrift soldiers and members of the cast to special screenings of the film. It was decided to hold back a little on the US release date in order to take advantage of the busy summer period in the cinemas. But that didn't mean that promoting the movie would cease or slow down in the meantime. And you must also remember that this was over 10 years before Jaws would capture the world's imagination as what is generally regarded as the first true summer blockbuster movie. In fact, promotion for Zulu went into overdrive with what was described as a showmanship caravan touring the States for three weeks in December 63 and January 64, calling at New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Dallas, Atlanta and Kansas City. premiere at the RKO Palace in New York was notable in the fact that the attendance was not just by invite only. The general public were able to buy tickets and sat alongside celebrities such as Anthony Perkins, Veronica Lake and Anne Sheridan. Released in the US at a time when race issues were at the forefront and black militancy was on the increase, with race riots in several US cities, Zulu was always going to be a gamble, and the movie provided relatively disappointing box office returns, despite some excellent reviews. It was a completely different story in Britain, however, where the movie was making box office history. Within three months, Zulu became the biggest grossing film that Paramount had ever released in Britain. Not long after, it actually, for a short while at least, became the highest grossing general release in British cinema history, overtaking from Russia with Love. Goldfinger, however, would soon overtake this by the end of the year. When you look at the final box office receipts for 1964, Zulu would eventually finish in a respectable third place behind A Hard Day's Night. Zulu would receive numerous re-releases over the following years, 
1967, 1970, 1972 where it was screened in 70mm and then a final re-release in 1976 before the rights to its TV broadcast were picked up by ITV. Stanley Baker had always wanted the movie to remain a theatrical entity with regular cinema re-releases over the years, but it was inevitable that it would eventually be shown on television. Whether it was down to Baker's own wishes, or more likely due to ITV waiting for a major time slot to screen the movie, it was not broadcast until six months after Stanley Baker's death. It received its national TV premiere on New Year's Eve 1976 at 8pm and has remained a staple of the holiday schedules ever since. In these days where CGI is able to recreate all elements of great historical epic stories, it's easy to forget that not that long ago, making a movie was a tough, drawn-out business where you had to work very hard to achieve your vision. Zulu was made in a different era, right near the tail end of the traditional studio system before the studios themselves became swallowed up by massive international corporations. And it's thanks to the determination and the vision of filmmakers such as Stanley Baker and Cy Enfield that we get a remarkable epic movie such as Zulu. A movie from a bygone age, where great storytelling, practical filmmaking techniques and a script that highlights the remarkable characters involved were key. Rightly earning its place as one of the greatest British movies of all time. Boxing Day Evening, 1962. The Christmas number one, Top of the Hit Parade, was returned to sender by Elvis Presley. Small screen entertainment on the TV that evening included Moulin Rouge with Jose Ferrer and Zsa Zsa Gabor, or on the other side there was an evening's entertainment from the London Palladium with Bruce Forsyth and Norman Wisdom. All around the country, families were settling down after a busy two days of eating, drinking and making merry. And then, it began to snow. A day late and tantalisingly close to giving the country a proper white Christmas, but snow nevertheless. The temperature dropped, and it continued to snow. And it snowed, and snowed, and it got colder, and it snowed, and it snowed some more. And that was how it would be for the next 100 days or so, as Britain was plunged into an icy wilderness that would last until the following March. Industry ground to a halt as businesses and schools were forced to close. 
There was widespread panic as ambulances and fire crews were unable to respond to emergencies. Essential supplies and medication failed to get through to hospitals and over half the natural wildlife population died in the freezing temperatures, unable to forage for food. Nothing could be done to stop the bitter temperatures and the relentless snowfall. Join me next time as I tell the story of the Great Freeze of 1963.